These drugs turn off regulatory systems in the brain that constrain and limit what you think. And in fact, that's why they work, because they break people out of this very deeply ingrained, often decades-long processes of thinking and believing. I think psychedelics are going to be the breakthrough that both psychiatry and psychology is needed to bring them back together because they've separated for far too long into separate camps, often oppositional camps. That's unfortunate, and it's certainly not for the patient's benefit. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm psychologist Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. Today I'm talking to David Nutt, Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, about a topic that fascinates me, psychedelics. I'll be honest up front, I knew very little about psychedelics until early this year when I read David's book on the topic. I had so many preconceived ideas about psychedelics, and as I discovered whilst reading the book, and as we chat about in this interview, a lot of them were completely inaccurate. In this interview, we talk about what research tells us about how psychedelic drugs can impact our mindsets and potentially improve mental health. What I find particularly fascinating is that we're at a moment in time where psychedelics could strengthen the relationship between psychiatry and psychology to treat mental health conditions and help people thrive in life. In this episode, we speak about studies that have explored the benefits of psychedelics David shares insightful stories of how people have been able to release trauma, overcome addictive behaviour, and even reset their mindset thanks to the medical benefits of psychedelics. David explains why these drugs are illegal and the challenges his team and others around the world face in being able to use them in studies to research the benefits. This topic is particularly close to my heart, given this podcast is not-for-profit and supports the Mental Health UK charity. The more we learn about the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics as a treatment for mental health conditions, the closer we're working towards helping people overcome psychological challenges and even thrive. And as always, if you're looking for guidance on how to thrive in life, check out the free coaching resources and videos at the Mindset Matters Hub. Before we jump in, I just want to address the fact that the topic of psychedelics can be a tricky one to cover, and David explains why that's the case. In this interview, we're chatting about psychedelics as a therapy. We don't touch on recreational use, which is a different topic altogether. So let's jump in, and I hope you find this topic as fascinating as I do. Hello, Professor David Nutt. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good, Gemma. Thanks very much. I'm really, really keen to jump into our conversation today because I've been reading your book, Psychedelics, which has been a bit mind-blowing for me, I have to say. And it struck me that there's this it's really interesting and important time where the intersection between kind of psychiatry and psychology there's a chance here that we can start to pull those together in a really new and transformative way as we start to move forward to to treat mental health conditions or to help people thrive in life. And that's really what I would love to talk to you about today. Well, that's one of my agendas as well. So yeah, let's do it. I I think psychedelics are going to be the breakthrough that 
both psychiatry and psychology is needed to bring them back together because they've separated for far too long into separate camps, often oppositional camps. That's unfortunate, and it's certainly not for the patient's benefit. But uh, one thing is clear, that psychedelics do make people's minds more receptive and flexible for psychotherapy. So, yeah, let's let's use utilise them to bring out the best of both disciplines. Uh-huh. Amazing. And that's kind of what's really struck me about your research and delving into it is the crossover and also the potential there as well. But I think let's start right at the very beginning because I recently read your book and I have to say I was a bit of a novice when it comes to psychedelics. And I'm sure lots of people listening could be as well. So what exactly is a psychedelic? Well, a psychedelic is a, a drug which conforms to the definition of a psychedelic. A psychedelic is a, a constructed word, an invented word. It means mind manifesting. And it was a word that was invented by the pioneers in the beginning, people like Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. It's obviously become a very popular word in, in current culture. In scientific terms, there really isn't a definition. But what we can say is that the majority of what we call the classic psychedelics, like psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, or LSD, or dimethyltryptamine, DMT and ayahuasca, or mescaline from the peyote or San Pedro cactus, they all have a common pharmacology. And that pharmacology is that they all stimulate a particular subtype of serotonin receptors in the brain called the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. Now, there are other sort of psychedelics uh, that work on different receptors. So one of them is called Amanita muscaris. And that's actually uh, a not really hallucinatory mushroom, but it's, um, it definitely produces alterations, distortions of perception. And that works through a particular kind of GABA receptor. And then there's also uh, interesting plants such as Salvia divinorum, where the active ingredient there works through a particular kind of opiate receptor called the kappa opiate receptor. And then on top of all that, we've got the modern synthetic drug called ketamine, and also its relative PCP. And they have a very different pharmacology again. So there's no uniform pharmacology to the term psychedelics, but there is a kind of uniformity in experience, which is that people find that their consciousness is profoundly altered. Uh, Often they see things or experience things or get insights which they didn't have before. And very often they find them very beneficial. And I find it really interesting reading your book and learning a bit more about the different types of psychedelics. And actually the fact that when research was first conducted way, way back when, and we'll we'll delve into why we've had a bit of a halt on the research front. But originally it was kind of assumed that psychedelics switched something on in your brain. It allowed you to go to a different place or view things in a different way. But actually that's not the case at all, is it? But of course, the original proponent of psychedelic therapy was Timothy Leary. And he famously said, tune in, turn on, drop out. And uh, the supposition was that you turned on parts of your brain, which allowed you to think differently. But when we did our first brain imaging studies, we were surprised to discover that uh, the main effect of psilocybin, and then subsequently we've shown it with both LSD and with dimethyltryptamine, the impact was to switch off parts of the brain, but uh, particularly parts of the brain which control all the other parts of the brain. And uh, so, in fact, it was very interesting. So Leary was wrong, but before Leary, there was a man called Aldous Huxley. And Aldous Huxley was right, because Huxley, after his first mescaline experience, said, I think mescaline is actually 
turning off the part of the brain which is controlling my mind. So in fact, Huxley was right and Leary was wrong. These drugs turn off regulatory systems in the brain that constrain and limit what you think. And in fact, that's why they work, because they break people out of this very deeply ingrained, often decades-long processes of thinking and believing, which are probably unmutable, immutable in other, with other means, except perhaps severe fasting or near-death experiences. So the psychedelics basically change the way your brain functions to allow you a period, a short period, of, of thinking differently. So am I right in thinking that that could be a really unique and transformative opportunity to change your mindset? So if our mindset is our beliefs and attitudes are about how we make, that we use to make sense about the world or about ourselves, if we're turning off parts of our brains that regulate our thoughts or how our mind works, I'm guessing then we have the opportunity to actually shift our mindsets to achieve different results. And as we know, as research has shown, mindset can play a significant role in life's outcomes. So we can alter that as well. Well, that's uh, exactly right. And that's, of course, why these drugs, or at least some of them, uh, particularly the serotonergic psychedelics and ketamine, are being used to treat disorders like depression, because in those disorders, people's minds get locked into thought loops. We call them ruminations, where a depressed person might repeatedly think time after time, hour after hour, day after day, that they're a worthless person. And even though they might know they're not objectively, they can't stop that thinking and that, and that drags them down and eventually it can lead to suicide. So breaking that rut of thinking uh, can be hugely therapeutic and that's kind of what we're finding today. And then what's even more remarkable is it, it's not simply that psychedelics change the way people think but they put the brain into a state where you can think differently after the psychedelic experience. So it's not like it's a transient disruption. It's a disrupt. It is a transient effect, the psychedelic effect, but, but the ramifications can be very long lasting. People can literally escape from their depression and, and view the world very differently afterwards in a much more positive light. And that's what your research has been showing. And and research all around the world as well. And do you see that we're moving into potentially a phase in life where psychedelics of different kinds potentially will help people or will be used as treatment commonly um, to treat things like depression, like anxiety, like PTSD, and potentially, you know, even going through your book, things like OCD, eating disorders, ADHD, um, dementia even, Do you see us moving in that direction? Well, we are moving in that direction, and the evidence is accruing on on an almost weekly basis. Paper coming out so frequently now, it's hard to keep up. It may seem strange to to the listeners why a psychedelic could impact so many different mental disorders. In fact, the one or two you left out, like addictions. Oh, yes. Yes, huge. And And that's uh, huge. That is huge. You're right. So, so why, how could that be? And it really gets back to the point I was making earlier that in many psychiatric disorders, uh, which we call internalizing disorders, people get locked into thought processes which are about themselves, uh, about their own failings, about their own abilities. So, I've already mentioned in depression, people get locked into thought loops 
about that they're worthless or they've made mistakes and they've hurt other people. In OCD, people get locked into thought loops that they're contaminated or that they're, you know, they're thinking wrong thoughts. In anorexia, people get locked into thought loops that they're actually, they've got to starve themselves or, or they're too fat. In addiction, people get locked into thought loops that they've got to have a drug, even though it's harming them. And those internalized thought loops commandeer their mind and, and they're, because they take up a lot of the brain's activity. So breaking down those internalized thinking, rutted thoughts could allow any of those kind of disorders, uh, you know, people to break free from them. And of course, this is becoming, in a therapeutic sense, this is becoming more commonplace in countries like Australia or, you know, Holland for a long time, but also parts of the US as well. Are we seeing progress around the world where this is becoming part of a what we'd consider standard treatment for some of these disorders? Well, we're seeing progress, yes. I, mean, I wouldn't say it's a standard treatment. So let me just through where these drugs or these... I mean, let's not call them drugs. Let's call them therapies because the therapy does involve more than just taking a pill. It's not something you take every night before you go to bed or first thing in the morning. It's a medicine that you take in a circumstance where you're seeking help and you're being guided to maximise the benefits of the medicine. So we, we often call it psychedelic-assisted therapy. Where does it exist? Well, it's existed for thousands of years in the, uh, in the Amazon uh, and also other parts of uh, uh, South and, and Latin America. Uh, and that's generally been uh, either mushrooms or ayahuasca administered by a shaman in a group setting with a view to help people come to terms with problems in their life or help them deal with problems in their mind. And over the last 10 years or so, quite a number of those South American states have actually made those local medicines, those plant-based medicines, legal. Um, they're not necessarily available on their NHS equivalents, but they are available if, if you want to have them. And then more recently, we've seen, or very recently, just a year or so ago, Australia decided to make psilocybin, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, and MDMA, which is the uh, empathogenic, intactogenic love drug we used to call ecstasy, available as medicines. And that, but they're available for people who have failed on other treatments. So psilocybin is now can be used in Australia on a compassionate basis for people who failed with depression, and MDMA for people with post-traumatic stress disorder who haven't responded to other treatments. So that's on. That's a compassionate access. In fact. For Quite some decades, some psychiatrists in Switzerland have been allowed to use LSD and psilocybin and MDMA in in their patients for compassionate access. So, so there's this that's uh, that's kind of where we are at present. But what is changing is, are several things. So, that in terms of MDMA, which is the medicine, or sorry, the the treatment that is most likely to get a license and a proper approval from the FDA uh, in the next year or so, because it's got two major trials now in PTSD, so-called phase three trials, large numbers of patients, very powerful outcomes. And it's very likely that the FDA will approve MDA as medicine soon. But also in parallel, the USA is a rather interesting country because it effectively has devolved healthcare to the states and because it's a democracy, it's possible for citizens of states to put on the, the ballot 
all sorts of interesting um, requests to vote about. In the last election, when Biden got elected, the citizens of Oregon put making magic mushrooms legal on their ballot and it, and it, and it got through. And now they're setting up magic mushroom facilities. They would call them well-being centers. Uh, basically, they can be set up anywhere in Oregon. The towns will have a, the right to opt out. It's within a year or so, most of Oregon will have access to mushroom therapy. And that's not for mental illness. That's for well-being. That's for people who want to experience improvements in mood uh, and well-being with a view, I think, to being better, becoming better people, but also with a view to perhaps getting resilient, because there is a bit of evidence that that um, the use of psychedelics actually can essentially make you cope better with life and, and you know, avoid needing other treatments for things like depression or anxiety. And uh, elsewhere in the world, you know, there's progress. In the Netherlands, the Dutch have set up a government inquiry to explore whether they should make MDMA available, both as a medicine or even recreationally, uh, to minimise the risks of their young people who want to use MDMA getting hold of the wrong dose or the wrong batch or some other drug that isn't MDMA. And uh, in the UK, of course, you know, we've got some you know, quite extensive work being done by my group and the group at King's, which suggests that you know, these uh, drugs can have efficacy in many of the disorders we've mentioned. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, our uh, regulators confront this, because it, it may turn out to be that um, the Australian experience which is compassionate use. That might be a most efficient way of making these available for UK patients. Interesting. And I guess kind of on that note, we should probably discuss how we ended up in this place where research is so limited in the world of psychedelics. So you talk a lot about this in your book about how, as you said, there there were lots of practitioners that, you know, 50 years ago were perhaps using some of these psychedelics or drugs in their therapy in a therapeutic way but of course that all stopped as things became illegal um how did that whole process unfold well i mean psychedelics have been known since uh humans started eating things because <laughs> obviously humans began to experiment eat any the first hominids would have eaten anything they came across and they would have come across magic mushrooms and they would have thought that's unusual <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Some of them would have come across cacti and thought, that's pretty weird. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact, we know the ancient Greeks uh, used to wait until the um, to autumn and then the dew would start to allow a fungus called ergot to grow on their cereal crops. And the ancient Greeks thought that that fungus was part of the cereal. They thought that was the mature end uh, you know, of the cereal after it's produced all its, um, its seeds. But of course it wasn't. It was a, a little fungus growing on it. But So they took the fungus and they put the fungus into wine and ma- they made a drink called the Kikion, which uh, fueled a lot of their uh, celebrations, their autumn celebrations called the Eleusinian Mysteries because that was a, because ergot contains uh, a weak variant of LSD. Uh, and uh, it's a powerful combination with, um, with some wine. But it was ergot, interestingly, that was, turned out to be the basis of modern psychedelic research and therapy because we have known for quite a few hundred years that 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 ergot fungus makes something which is actually quite useful in medicine. And it was used by wise women, uh, midwives, 
to help women who've just given birth stop bleeding. If you take ergot, it constricts the uterus so you don't bleed so much. And it also, interestingly, releases milk so you can feed the baby better. So ergot has been around as a medicine for quite a few hundred years. And then more recently, it was discovered it could stop migraines. And a man called Albert Hoffman in the 1940s was working on how to improve the effect of uh, ergot. The particular derivative he's working on was ergotamine, which is still in migraine tablets today. And, uh, and he made some variants to see if they had basically better eff efficacy and they could be patented. And one of them turned out to be, well, his 25th variant turned out to be called lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD. And, uh, and that turned out to be extraordinarily potent, way more potent than anything he'd made before. Uh, and um, he was so impressed with the powerful impact it had on his mind that he persuaded his, the company he worked for called Sando that this could be a revolution in terms of psychiatry. And they made it available to thousands of researchers and psychiatrists around the world. And there was a huge uh, explosion of research in the 50s and 60s. And uh, it really was a transformational period for psychiatry. It was the first medicine psychiatrists had that actually did things in their brain. And people thought it was an extremely powerful way of treating anxiety, depression, trauma, etc. But But it was a medicine, but it was also legal. And it gradually slipped out of medical use. It slipped out into military use through MK Ultra, trying to brainwash people. But it slipped out into, initially, sort of cultural branches of, uh, of life, particularly writing the work. I mean, Huxley and others took it. And then into poetry, and then into art, and then into music. And the concept of psychedelia, the sort of psychedelic revolution began. And that was, was actually fantastic in terms of creativity but it began to change people's attitude to things like war and in the 60s the vietnam war was in full swing and a lot of young american men were refusing to go and fight and they would leave their towns and disappear off to san francisco where people like leary were campaigning for the use of lsd as a, a way of essentially changing society make love not war was the you know, the, the cause that was being championed. And uh, and that was so c contradictory to the American, or even, to be honest, the Western way of doing diplomacy, which was all about fighting wars. We were just finished fighting the, the war in um, Korea. And obviously the war in Vietnam was being fought in traditional way, dropping bombs. The, and the American government was threat thought that LSD would actually stop people wanting to fight wars. So they couldn't ban war protests, but they could ban the drug. They banned the drug, uh, thinking that it would stop the anti-war protests. Of course, it didn't. The anti-war protests continued, and eventually the war stopped. But they never unbanned the drug. And the, and the worst thing of all they did was, was actually, they when they banned LSD, they also banned all the other serotonergic psychedelics along with it. But they didn't just ban it for recreational use. They viciously and... Uh, deliberately banned it for medical use it was all it was vengeful and i think it was a sort of hatred of change and a hatred of young people and of course it ended up having little impact on recreational use but it completely stopped medical use because when the, the one group of the population who couldn't take the risk of being criminalized were doctors
So for 55 years, we've not had access to what are potentially the most powerful treatments in the history of psychiatry, simply because the, uh, the US government wanted to shut down protests against the war in Vietnam. Which is such a shame, because we're so much further behind, potentially, than we could be in terms of treating some of these disorders or like but like even as you were saying earlier it's not also it's also we're talking about this in a therapeutic sense but look at Oregon in the US people looking at this in terms of well-being so it's not necessarily therapy fixing something or changing something it's perhaps kind of even accessing some kind of mindset or something going on in, in their heads that they can't they wouldn't necessarily be able to access without this kind of intervention and of course, there's been so much stigma around this as well. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. I remember I was absolutely petrified of psychedelics growing up because of the huge press campaigns that we experienced in the UK. And I, I can still see the images now. I can still put myself back there. I, I remember what it was like. You know, we had visits to schools warning us against using any of these kind of drugs. And of course, you know, the stigma is there for people that have been researching this, such as yourself as well. And, and it's, it's impacted your career, hasn't it, in some ways? Well, once upon a time, I was a government's chief drugs advisor. And uh, one day on the Today programme, BBC Radio 4, I, I made the mistake of saying, well, of course, LSD is less harmful than alcohol. And, and, and the world went completely mad. I mean, truly mad. I spent the rest of the day doing radio and TV interviews explaining what I was saying. Like, Got on, got on the front page of USA Today the next day and was sacked the day after. Why was I sacked? For challenging British drug policy. Uh, sorry, I thought my job was to advise you on drug policy. And I thought perhaps the policy might, might benefit from actually being based on facts rather than politics. But um, actually, in a way, the sacking was a, was a good thing because it, it confronted everyone with a... a the reality of, of, of the drug laws, that the drug laws aren't based on evidence at all. They're, all. they're all historically based. They're all based on largely on politics, a bit on commercial benefits to companies like the drinks industry wanting to keep drugs illegal because they compete with it. But mostly it's politics and uh, mostly it's American politics. Every, until 2016, every law about drugs we ever made in this country was effectively made at the behest of the Americans. In 2016, we went ahead of them. We brought in the Psychoactive Substances Act to ban everything because, because well, I don't know why, because we had Theresa May as Home Secretary, I suppose. People that, people that didn't act, people who hate novelty and innovation. But, but mostly we've just been a, a sort of a, a secondary subsidiary partner to the US moralistic position on drugs. And tell me about that. So, the you know, the whole comments that you made about... LSD being less harmful than alcohol and I know you've got a whole book as well talking about alcohol as well but tell me a little bit about that and what we know about LSD for example versus alcohol. Well why would I say that so I said that based on eight years of research looking at the comparative harms of drugs that I'd actually done as part of the home office <laughs> we'd done it with government scientists and other experts I mean drugs cause harm in all sorts of different ways and um, in fact, there are 16 ways in which drugs can harm you. There are nine harms to the user and there are seven harms to society. And if you aggregate all the harms of alcohol and all the harms of LSD, you discover that in the UK, alcohol is probably causing somewhere between 
eight and ten times as much harm as LSD. And the same is true in other Western countries, because this particular approach, analytical approach called multi-criteria decision analysis, has been applied in Europe by the European Department of Justice, based, you know, because they were interested in our work. And more recently, it's been applied in Australia uh, and separately in New Zealand, and they all come to the same conclusion. That alcohol is more harmful to the user than LSD, and more harmful to society than LSD. Why is that? Well, to the user, it's pretty obvious because most people use LSD once or twice in their life. So the harms are going to be pretty trivial. Because, whereas alcohol, most people use it every day or many. And the harms are cumulative. So, you know, you can just, because that helps explain that difference. Yes, one or two people might have quite severe harms from LSD. But as far as we know, no one's actually ever died of an LSD poisoning. They might have done some silly things when they were tripping and made of, you know, somehow some have fallen off cliffs, etc. But when you think of the fact that um, in Britain, 8,000 people a year die directly as a result of alcohol, and about another 20,000 die indirectly from alcohol, you know, LSD you know, almost vanishingly small in harms to the user. And then you look at harms to society. Well, every family in Britain probably has been damaged to some extent by alcohol, either because they've got someone who's drunk too much and harmed themselves or become an alcoholic, or someone who's been damaged by uh, someone else who's drunk. So uh, it's uh, a huge, huge problem because alcohol is so widely used. LSD, does LSD harm anyone? It's pretty hard to find any evidence of it. Yeah, there will one of, there'll be one or two people who've had very paranoid reactions and, and have harmed other people. But overall, you know, LSD doesn't really harm people. Now people say, well, yeah, that's because it's not much used. And the truth is, well, it isn't as much used as alcohol. That's absolutely true. But that's why we look at the harm to the user, because that the harm to the user takes into account just the harm to the user. And even then, alcohol is way more harmful than LSD. And it can't, that brings me around to thinking about how psychedelic-assisted therapy would work, because we can't, even though there's less harm, the, the data shows there's less harm to the individual in society with LSD, for example, versus alcohol, there, I'm guessing there are challenges involved with taking this kind of job, particularly potentially if you're doing it on your own as well. And that's why, you know, in your book, when you're talking about the benefits of psychedelics, you're talking about it in a therapeutic sense. So doing, taking these drugs or these substances, they're not necessarily drugs. I don't know if we call them drugs or not, but taking these substances <laughs> in a very yeah. controlled way. And you talk a lot as well about doing this in a therapeutic way. So with a therapist there as well, would you be able to talk me through that process of how that would actually work? Yes. Um, but before I talk about the therapy, I'll just make a general point. I certainly don't recommend anyone taking a powerful psychoactive substance in a situation where there's not someone else there who's not taking it to to look after them if things go wrong. I think you know that that would be a necessary prerequisite of, of any kind of um, exploratory use of, of drugs, particularly powerful drugs like psychedelics. And we take that into account in our clinical therapy. So the, 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 there's a three-stage process. If, if someone meets the criteria for having a psychedelic treatment, and we, we're currently using psilocybin, but other groups are using DMT, and some are using LSD and mescaline studies are starting. Once they've met the criteria that they're, you know, they're healthy enough and they're not on any medicines which would make make the trip worse or block the trip, then they come into a clinic, usually an outpatient clinic, for a th essentially three 
separate day at um, interventions. The first day is the preparation session, and there they meet the guide or guides that are going to take them through the trip, and they learn to get confidence in them, and they also get taught about what a trip will be like. And most importantly, they get taught about uh, how to deal with um, their feelings if, it, if the trip is challenging and difficult, which for patients it usually is because they're revisiting traumas or revisiting um, aspects, mistakes they've made in their life. But they get they also there give permission to for the therapist to hold their hands if they're necessary. And they're also encouraged how, to, you know, they're taught a bit how to deal with the resistance because many people try to resist the experience and it, that usually gets in the way of the therapeutic benefit what you really want to do is go is to basically confront the demons that might rise up and actually get through and deal with them rather than resisting because you can you can using psychological approaches or you know or even distraction techniques you can actually minimize to some extent the, the psychedelic experience but you don't want to you want to maximize the benefit so you get basically well prepared and then the next day you have the trip, and again, is it one or two guides present? We put we do it in a nice room, a relaxing room, so people feel comfortable and secure. And we normally, well, we always offer them eye shades, earphones, where they can hear a, a big playlist. And normally they want to do that. And we encourage them to basically go into their inner space after they've taken the drug. And with psilocybin, the trip lasts uh, four to six hours. DMT, it can only be half an hour. But we still encourage them to try to learn as much as they can from those experiences. And then the day after, the third day, is the integration session. And they they talk through with their their guides, their therapists, the experience. And they try to make sense of it. And and the therapist tries to help them maximize the benefits of the insights and the new ways of thinking. Maybe lay down new patterns of feeling about themselves, new analyses of their past failings. They can often see things very differently afterwards and that can often be the reason they feel so much better about themselves because you know they realize they're not worthless or they're not um, infected or in ocd or they're not fat in a, in in anorexia they can they can see themselves differently and come out of that in a with a very different perspective on life and then you can have follow-up sessions depending on well resourced the th- the, you know the research teams are because this is all research at present. But some people are doing it now. Countries there are retreats, ayahuasca retreats in places like Costa Rica. There's mushroom retreats in the Netherlands where the truffles have always been legal. So so people can go there as well and get more ongoing therapy. And is it this idea of creating new neural pathways that promotes neuroplasticity? So the fact that we can change the way our brains perhaps work and then potentially even our thoughts around the world and what we're experiencing yeah so psychedelics change the way your brain works that's an absolute fact in that state of altered consciousness people very often usually reframe aspects of their life you know they typically go back to traumas which they may have forgotten about they may have repressed, they may have been avoiding, and they confront them. And one of our patients, you know, he said, in that, he said, I saw my father abusing me. And then I realized it wasn't my fault. Up to that point, I thought it was my fault. I'd done something wrong. And I realized what a noxious, evil, pathetic little man he was. And I just said, that's it. You know, I've got closure on you. 
And uh, he came out of the trip and said, I've done it. You know, I've got rid of that um, guilt I felt about being a victim. I mean, and that's very common. Children do often assume that if things go wrong, it's their fault. And, uh, and he's been well, you know, pretty much, you know, for 12 years now. I mean, obviously, he still has traumas like the rest of us. He still has challenges and stresses, but he's he's managed to see his life in a much more positive way because he's dealt with that big trauma. Now, the enduring effects are partly due to the memory of the events or the, or the insights that people had during the trip, and partly due to the fact that psychedelics, as well as disrupting thought processes, they also facilitate the laying down of new neural pathways. We call that neuroplasticity. And so if you come out of the, out of the trip with a new way of thinking and your therapist can help guide you in, into consolidating those new thought processes, then your, your brain is perfectly primed for you to lay down these new ways of thinking. And, uh, and for many people, those, those benefits are very long lasting. But they're not in all of them. Most people get a benefit, but people who've got severe chronic depression, often the depression starts to creep back after a, a months or, or, or years. Uh, and that is probably because depression is very, very deep-seated. Depression that occurs in childhood probably almost patterns the brain in a in the same way as that starvation in childhood patterns your meta metabolism. So we're still working on ways of which we can help people whose depression comes back, see if we can keep pushing it down, pushing it down, so eventually it dies away. And I guess that's ongoing research. So that's what you're trying to find out, whether those kind of people would benefit from... Yeah, and it's difficult, though, because these drugs are illegal. And, and you know, and this is the saddest thing of all, Gemma. The saddest thing of all is having patients get better, dramatically better, transformational. And then six months later, they're back where they were. And they say, give me another trip. And I say, I can't. I'm not allowed to. I can only give you a trip if I got a grant to do that study. And I haven't got any grants. And so they know there's a therapy there that they are being denied simply because 50 years ago, someone wanted to stop the Vietnam War protest there. And it is absolutely outrageous. I mean, and so some of them, if they're well enough off, they go to the Netherlands or Spain where they can get ayahuasca. But it just seems to me cruel that we have to, we're denying people a proven therapy simply to fulfill idiotic historical opposition to people changing the way they think with psychedelics. And it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it is, I've said, and I will continue to say it, this, the censorship of use of psychedelics, which is essentially started in America in 1968, 67, I think, was incorporated into 1971 UN conventions, which every country in the world except North Korea signed up to. It's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world, any research in the history of the world. I'll give you an example, a little, com a little calculation. We've talked a bit in the past on this program about, about addiction. Well, it's not generally known that uh, the guy that founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, he escaped from his alcoholism as a result of a trip. It was a, not a psychedelic trip. In the, it wasn't a classic psychedelic. It was something called belladonna, scopolamine, which is actually sometimes mixed with ayahuasca uh, in the in, you know, Amazon region. But it, it can produce powerful alterations of thinking. And he escaped from his addiction through this uh, psychedelic trip. He founded Alcoholics Anonymous, which was going quite well, but it wasn't curing very many people. 
1953, LSD became available. And he took it, actually, interestingly, with, with uh, Aldous Huxley. And Wilson realised that what LSD did, had done to him then is the same as what Belladonna had done to him uh, 20 years before. It had basically made him see the world differently. And he campaigned to get LSD as a therapy for alcoholism. And he was quite successful. He managed to get a number of studies funded by the National Institute of Health in the States. And he believed that LSD could help alcoholics who could not see there was anything more to life than booze, to see a bigger picture. And, and that was all going very promisingly until it, LSD got banned in 67 in the States. Now, 10 years ago, two Norwegians went back and they got hold of the source data, the original data from the, the six trials of LSD and alcoholism that were conducted in the States in the 60s. And they discovered that the effect size, the impact, the medical impact of one LSD trip to reduce drinking over six months was three times bigger than any treatment we have since or before had for alcoholism. Now, you can work out it's 55 years since LSD was banned in America and pretty much over the world. So, so how many people with alcohol dependents have died in those 55 years well, probably 100 million you know average about two three million a year suppose lsd had helped 10 percent of them you know well that's 10 million lives rescued how many lives have been saved by banning lsd well probably none i mean possibly a thousand a hundred that doesn't matter i mean the reality is the equation is so tipped in favor of it being a therapy it is truly outrageous so the, you know it's i find it quite difficult to talk about this because it, it's just so out, it is so isn't it so bizarre that you would actually deny if it was a cancer treatment or a treatment for stroke or heart disease it wouldn't have been banned these drugs were only banned because they changed the way people thought or voted as well as changed the way people actually dealt with their addiction it's such a shocking place to be. And I think that's one of the things that I felt, you know, we've spoken before about this. One of the things that I felt when I was reading your book is complete and utter shock by the time I got to the end about how little I knew about psychedelics in a therapeutic sense, but also the fact that so many people have potentially been denied really powerful therapies to either help them lead healthier or happier lives, or in fact, to live at all. Great point, Emma. So I went to Australia to talk to the regulators last year, this time last year, and, and, and go through all the evidence for psychedelics and the fact that there's historic trials and there's new trials. And, and while I was in Australia, one thing that they told me, which I didn't know, but was very chilling, was that every day in Australia, a first responder, so that's a policeman, a paramedic, an ambulanceman, or you know, a firefighter, kills himself because of the trauma they've experienced. So that's 350 deaths a year. They've all been in therapy in the one of the top five countries in the world in terms of mental health therapy. They're getting the best therapy that's possible to get anywhere pretty much in the world. And they're still killing themselves. And that's why the Australian regulators said, well, hang on, you know, what's there to lose by giving them a chance? The families of the of the people who killed themselves are saying, "Why, why? Let's not let's stop this. Let's see if we can reduce these number of deaths. Maybe even if we took a third off. You know, if it was a 
maybe we saved 100 lives a year. What's the downside? And of course, the only downside is that you're actually telling the truth that the drug laws are rubbish. So there are moralists who say, oh, no, you can't do that because you're breaking the conventions. But the, pa the patients who are both sick or, or the families who've lost loved ones are saying, it is ridiculous. You know, bowing to this god of, of prohibition when people are dying is wrong. And so the basic Australian was, look, the benefit risk is so much fa in favour of giving it a trial, compassionate use, just like in Switzerland, let's give it a go and see what happens. Monitor the outcomes and... If people get better, great. If you reduce suicide rates, great. You know, let's just do it. Because the harms are... What are the harms? I mean, the people are still using these drugs recreationally. So, so you know, the, the law has failed in that, if that. was The only reason for having the ban was to stop recreational use. So, you know, if you discover that um, you, the recreational use, you know, it won't change by making it a medicine. It's much cheaper to get it on the street than it is to go into a hospital and get it. And on that note as well, I think, yes, we know that these substances are being used recreationally, but actually we don't necessarily know what's in those substances because if it's not regulated and, you know, there's there's horror stories, aren't there, of things that you can kind of buy on the streets and you don't really know what's in it. And does that pose harm, potential harm as well? Well, that's right. I mean, the harms of, look, the harms have been exaggerated. And uh, the harms have been made worse by prohibition. Uh, and despite all that, they're not that harmful. And when you use them clinically, the harms are vanishingly small. I mean, it, you're probably more likely to die of penicillin allergy than you are to die of either MDMA or psilocybin. Also peanut allergy. I mean, there was a new scientist did a wonderful article after my horse riding. Uh, comparison piece. tell me about uh, this yeah. like so listeners can hear this as well your your horse riding comparison which i i think is really nicely shows proportionality so you know how dangerous something can be yes yeah, so uh, i wrote a paper called equacy a new addiction with implications for drug policy and i i coined the term equacy because it sounded a bit like ecstasy and i wanted people to think ah there's another new ecstasy like pill on the streets but actually equacy stands for equine addiction syndrome the love of horse riding and why did i come up with that term well i was thinking and i have been thinking 10 years before i wrote that paper about how we could consider the harms of drugs in an objective way, so as to make a decision as to whether a drug should be controlled or not. And in that thinking process, one day in my clinic, back in Bristol University, I, uh, I saw a lady who'd fallen off a horse and she smashed the front of her brain in and it had changed her personality. So she became very disinhibited, very poor attention span. She'd lost a job, she'd lost her children. Uh, she got divorced and they, she was so disinhibited they wouldn't even let her into the local pub she was really disadvantaged and actually i treated her with amphetamines because that's a good treatment for severe attentional problems and it had a marginal effect on her but she just lost so much of her brain and um but i got thinking about horse riding uh, particularly as my two daughters were riding horses at the time and i realized when i did the research horse riding was actually quite dangerous and um, so I did a comparison. You know, 
we had a nine point scale of harms in those days. We now have this 16 point scale, but those days we had a nine point scale. And it turned out on most of the measures, horse riding was more dangerous than taking ecstasy. So for instance, particularly if you jump, if you go jumping on a horse, you're going to have a serious accident about one in every, I think, 350 hours. Whereas if you take a pill, you might have a, an accident, a serious accident, one every 10,000 hours. So there's, you can make those comparisons. You know, If you compare about the environment, there's just so much more methane from a horse than there is from an ecstasy tablet, things like that. Anyway, I wrote this article. Uh, partly also, uh, there, was another, there was another writer. There was a woman who used to write for the Sunday Times, and she was a horse rider. She broke her back in two places. So they had to put her in a, a metal frame to hold her back that's uh, rigid. And then she put, went, got back on a horse. And he said, well, you're mad. You get back on a horse. You've got, you know, and he died. And she said, you know, I can't. It's an addiction. I actually addicted to horse riding. That's why I came up with this, the, the equity um, idea. Well, the world went mad. I mean, absolutely mad. Publishing that article went completely bonkers. People just abused me. The Home Secretary shouted at me on the phone. I was insulting the families of people who died horse riding. I said, well, I wasn't doing that at all. I was, I was just simply saying I was riding quite dangerous, you know. I mean, and then there were, I got into this amazing logic, illogic loop with the Home Secretary. She was called Jackie Smith at the time. And she said, you can't compare a legal activity with an illegal one. When I said, well, don't you have to in order to decide if something's going to be illegal? And you could hear the sort of cogs. And then she just shouted, you can't do that. On what grounds do you make something illegal? And then she just put the phone down. And uh, it was surreal, wasn't it? I mean, the idea that, you know, you can ban things simply because... You... And it made, at that point, I suddenly, re it all became clear. The drug laws are all about politics. They're not, you know, they're about getting elected. They're about finding people you can punish to satisfy the sadism of older voters who like to see young people disadvantaged, young people who don't vote. And uh, at that point, I began to take the whole challenge of changing the drug laws quite seriously because, you know, again, you know, ecstasy has not been banned for as long as LSD, but it is still a, it's pushing 30 years since we've been able to use it recreation uh, sorry therapeutically and actually what i think is really important there is you know we're not really having a discussion about using drugs recreationally and people have different opinions and different views on that but i think the key point here is that to stop people using drugs recreationally we now can't use them therapeutically and potentially limiting people from accessing really powerful therapies and i think that's the that's the part that i find really challenging um, especially as a psychologist, you know, my, my whole world, my whole working life is about helping people to overcome challenges or to build resilience or to learn how to thrive or to feel better, to feel healthier, happier. And actually it feels, it feels really challenging for me to know that actually perhaps there are things that could help some people. We don't know if it's going to help everyone, but there's potentially therapies out there that could help people, um, and we can't do that. Although the the research is kind of starting to catch up, I guess, and and we're starting to have these yeah, conversations. It is starting to catch. I mean, how many universities in Britain have got a license to do clinical work with MDMA or psychedelics? Four, four, because it's really expensive and time consuming, and um, most people just can't be bothered. I mean, it, that's the problem. This it's, it 
the decision to put them into Schedule 1 of the Misuse of Drugs Act and Schedule 1 of the UN Convention, I think was a deliberate attempt to justify the decision. I think that the authorities did not want there ever to be any evidence that they were wrong. And they damn nearly succeeded. For a period of about 20 years, there was almost not a single study done with LSD or psilocybin. I think the prohibitionists, the governments, wanted to, people to forget these drugs existed. And thankfully, we've turned the tide now. But it, the cost has been yeah, millions of millions of people who've been disadvantaged, probably million have committed suicide who might not have done if they'd had access to these therapies. A million people a year commit suicide in the world. That's an astonishing figure. Astonishing figure. And your work, so reading, one of the bits that I was really interested in your book, because obviously my research topic is resilience, and I am very drawn to your research around people with chronic depression, for example, and how do we, as you were talking about earlier, how do, how can, how is it possible to help those people longer term? But on the flip side, I guess the other end of the spectrum, the area that I work in is resilience. So it's, it's growth after adversity, positive adaptation following adversity. Now, for some people, that could be extreme trauma. Um, but for others, it could be challenging moments in life or, you know, many obstacles going on at once that are hard to deal with. Maybe that taps into a past trauma or maybe it's just something that, you know, is, is new for an individual. And I don't know if the research is, I don't know if there is the research around this as yet, or if it's something that's being researched, but do you know of any research that's taking place around, is there anything around psychedelics in a therapeutic sense, helping to build that kind of everyday resilience and, and coping mechanisms? Well, just, yeah, a little bit. So in, in our clinical trials, we look at well-being as well as depression scores. And it was really quite remarkable when we did the head-to-head -head comparison of psilocybin, two trips, versus the SSRIS Atalopram for six weeks. We found that the mental well-being which I think does give you some degree of protection and resilience, was very much greater following the psilocybin than the escitalopram. I mean, escitalopram did improve well-being, but nothing like as much, about a third as much. So I, th I think, you know, that's, uh, that's a bit of evidence in that direction. The other thing we can say, and it, it, so we, these aren't trials, you couldn't do trials like this, but they're sort of epidemiological evidence and studies in the state. So if you take people who've... Um, come out of prison and then you look at the ones uh, subsequently who've taken psychedelics and those who haven't taking psychedelics does seem to reduce your um, risk of recidivism the le you're less likely to go back into prison suggesting you have a ch you've changed your attitude to, to life you're behaving differently and then we've got similar evidence if you just take a whole population of people you know have you ever taken psychedelics or not the ones who've taken psychedelics have lower rates of depression, anxiety, um, addictions. So, so there's lots of sort of pointers in the direction that psychedelics put your mind in a place where you're better able to make better decisions, deal with stress, maybe communicate better, maybe integrate better with other people. And that kind of fits with the subject. When we talk to our patients about what the experience is, and we also find this in the volunteers in our imaging studies, 
that they generally feel more connected after they've uh, had a had a trip and they feel more connected with their own thoughts you know they can make sense of their thoughts because depressed people often say it doesn't this isn't me but i can't stop it but they're also more connected with other people and they're more connected with nature and i i just wanted to go that reminded me i wanted to go back to a point you made earlier on about the challenges facing the world and uh I'm struck by the fact that there are people, particularly in Extinction Rebellion, the leader in the UK said she suddenly realised during a trip that the, you know we were going to lose so many species. And her whole career in Extinction Rebellion was fueled by the insights she got during a trip. And, and that fits, of course, right, you know, well with this empathy, the feeling of for other things that psychedelics often produce. One of which being nature. Sometimes it could be ourselves, it could be other people, it could be nature. And I, I, I love this idea of the connected side of it as well, because that's one of the, from my research, that's one of the strongest predictors of resilience was this idea of support and connection with others. And it's probably one of the least talked about factors, because often when we talk about resilience, we talk about what you can do as an individual to boost your resilience. Um, and of course, there's, you know, huge benefits in that. But equally, resilience is contextual. It depends what's going on around you. It depends who's around you. And actually, a lot of that context came out in my research. And, and one of those things is about being connected, whether it be to nature, whether it be to other people, and, and this idea of support around you as well. So, Well, yeah, absolutely. Loneliness is such a massive predictor of poor mental health and, and also shortened life expectancy. So, you know, be you know, we are social, humans are social creatures. And uh, if you can't communicate with other people, you know, you, it's, uh, it's a distressing state to be in. And I'm not saying psychedelics can deal with loneliness, but I'm saying that, you know, we should be doing, using all the tools in our toolbox to help people become more connected, particularly with other people. We're a very atomized society that you know, a lot of people have become very isolated and that is not good for their mental health. And kind of thinking about pulling all of this together today, I've loved our conversation so much and I, I feel like I could chat for hours with you on this topic. Um, what's your take on thriving and what it takes to thrive as a human? Being a human means you're actually juggling quite a lot of different balls at the same time. So I think there are several things I would do. People would say, how do I cope doing so many things? And you know, such a you know, busy life. And I say, you know, my joke is always catch the lowest ball. <laughs> so try to prevent try to prevent things breaking up. <laughs> That's always kind of a good start. Try to think, you know, stop things getting worse. So you haven't got to put the egg back together. Um, but I think being part, part of a team, I mean, no, you know, you've talked about my work, but, you know, my work is really the work of an enormous team of you know probably now probably over a hundred people have gone through the uh, the, the psychedelic center at imperial and uh since, you know the last 12 years and uh, and that's why we're successful but it's also why we you know have such a such a wonderful um you know, hope for the future because we all work as a team so so yeah so res so being part of a group that is actually trying to do something constructive and and positive and yes, okay, I'm fortunate. I can do it in science. I can do it in medicine. I can you know, make a difference to, to other people more you know, immediately. But 
as I, as I mentioned before, being part of being part of humanity is important. You know, is a way, is a really good way. So finding finding support groups, not necessarily to support you, but finding things to do with other people, you will get indirect support from that. And then, of course, you know, learning strategies. You know, one of the worst things. You know, being in a, I'm fortunate. I've been in a job that actually I want to do, always wanted to do, and been luckily. Very rarely have I been thwarted by someone not wanting me to do what I want to do. If you can find ways of working where you actually make the decisions, being autonomous is, I mean, it's not easy for most people, I understand, but, but the more autonomy you can have in your life, the more empowerment, the less stressful life is generally. And, uh, and obviously, moderate your drinking <laughs> so you can think rationally about things. But don't stop because there are times when drinking can be helpful especially socialising. And I think, you know, we, we've barely even touched on the alcohol part of your research today. Um, and, and I feel that that's a whole probably episode in itself. But it's... and Well, yeah, I'm very happy to come back and do another episode. We can do it during a sober January or whatever it's <laughs> Good idea. Dry Jan. Yes, very good idea. Dry January. Oh, <laughs> it's been fabulous. Professor David Nutt, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I thank you for writing the book as well. I, I have to say, I, I was a little bit sceptical before reading your book. I've read lots of books by academics before. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to relate to it or how interesting it was going to be. And I can genuinely say there's not one part I didn't read. I read the whole thing, which is quite rare for me, <laughs> from front to back. And I, and I want to go back and read it again. There's so many bits that I've earmarked, so many bits of research I want to delve into. But more than anything, it's helped me change my mindset about psychedelics as a therapy and opened my mind to, to what that could look like and what those possibilities could be. And I guess I'm also marrying that with my work as well. So thank you for, for writing that. And thank you as well for, you know, talking about this. I know it's not always easy. I know it's been a lot of pushback in your career, but thank you for making this such an important topic and continuing the conversation. Well, it's been great talking to you and uh, keep on spreading the word. Thank you. The Mindset Matters podcast is not for profit supporting Bloom Mental Health UK's resilience program for young people. Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom program and their impact at mentalhealth-uk.org. I hope you found Professor David Nutt's research as fascinating as I have. It's really interesting to think about how beneficial psychedelics can be for shifting our mindset, especially to help overcome trauma and assist with improving mental health. There are a few key takeaways that I took from talking with David. The first, how ingrained psychedelics are to human history. David shared only a few examples of their use in different cultures and different points in time. And in contrast, the relatively recent criminalization of psychedelics. And most fascinating of all, how politically driven the criminalization of these substances has been, which, when you think about it from a medical viewpoint, is incredibly limiting. And secondly, and more importantly perhaps, how psychedelics have the unique and powerful ability to create new pathways in the brain. This is hugely important from a psychological point of view. 
And although it's a topic we already know about, it's clear that there's so much opportunity here to further the research. And finally, how the research so far shows that LSD is safer than alcohol, which is something that I find astounding. If you found this episode interesting, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you want to learn more about psychology and psychedelics, I highly recommend reading Psychedelics by Professor David Nutt. It's a book that I genuinely couldn't put down. So thank you so much for listening to the Mindset Matters podcast today. Please feel free to check out the Mindset Matters hub. Thank you.